Welcome to Skoden Cinema. I am your host, Turtle Boy, and we are going to be wrapping up on this episode the 1988 classic War Party, starring Billy Worth and Kevin Dillon as our two leads. But uh, do not let that deter you because this film actually has a pretty stacked cast of natives and uh, the supporting roles. Uh, I mean, it ranges all the way from Tantu Cardinal to Dennis Banks to uh, Saginaw Grant to uh, uh, my favorite, uh, Tim Sampson. Uh, Richard Ray Whitman is in this, so it's got a pretty stacked cast despite those two leads. Um, but yeah, uh, getting this episode out about a week late, and truth is, is I've actually recorded it a couple of times, and I was going back to kind of edit it together. And I just wasn't really pleased with, with um, how it sounded or how it had turned out. And I want to make sure that I give this film uh, its due justice. I wanted to make sure that I presented the best content possible. And I just didn't feel like I was presenting that with the first two goes of, of how to wrap this film up. So I appreciate you guys hanging in there. And I definitely appreciate the support. So uh, let's talk about the, the music that you're listening to just real quick. It is uh, by the band Wasp, uh, the, the heavy metal band Wasp. It's a song called uh, uh, Trail of Tears, and it comes off the 2002 album um, A World is Dying or A World of Dying. And uh, this is sort of like uh, Blackie Lawless's uh, tribute to the 9-11 attacks. Uh, so it's sort of like a concept album, um, but but not really. It just it has a lot of heavy themes in it. Uh, but like I said, a one uh, is is sort of like uh, the catalyst was being the 9/11 tragedy. But it's all about the different tragedies. Um, every song is, and, and Trail of Tears is definitely one of them. So uh, go check it out. Um, and, and if those of you who are not in the know, actually, um, you know, Blackie Lawless is actually a, qu- a quarter uh, a Blackfeet Indian. So so there you go. His mom, he actually comes from, from a, a lineage. Um, he actually claimed Blackfeet. And so, uh, yeah, definitely support him. He's actually, they're coming to Tulsa, and I cannot wait to, to see them. I've never seen Wasp, and I'm super stoked for that show coming up. I want to say that's in March. But anyway, uh, 2002, it's called Dying for the World. Check out the whole album. Uh, I picked this song because, honestly, when I was watching this film, it just seems like a heavy metal movie to me. And I don't even really know what that means. But every time these scenes were were playing out on my screen, I just had, like, all of these... um, I was putting together my own soundtrack, basically, of, like, these 80s um, hair metal bands because it just 
gives off that that vibe that that 80s that late 80s um, metal vibe i don't know it's just because of the the cast the young cast in this film or even the subject matter or even both but anyway um, i thought the, the the two songs that i picked to introduce this film were like perfect um so i don't know tell me what you think and if there's any heavy metal bands out there that i might be missing um, as far as like um uh, you know, native-themed metal bands. I know Testament is one of them. But uh, if there's anybody out there that, that knows any that I might be missing, especially some of those deep-cut bands, uh, hit me up on uh, Instagram. Um, I am at uh, scoden underscore cinema. Uh, you can also uh, email the show at scodencinema at gmail.com. Or you can hit me up on the Facebook page as well. I've got both pages going. So uh, I think we're just going to go ahead and jump into it since we don't really need to talk about the cast. If you want to know who's in this film, go check out part one. I did a complete like 30-minute rundown of, of who's in this movie and their importance to native culture. So uh, yeah, let's just jump right into it, shall we? So, so where we had left off was um, the, the, the story's actually kind of just getting going. Um, there's like this uh, reenactment uh, that, that's taking place in the town. Um, and it's sort of like uh, an opportunity. The, the, the local government and even the tribal government sort of seems uh, sees it as a way to boost the local economy. And so they decided um, what better way than to um, reenact the tragedy of the Milk River Massacre. Um, and so, the, so they, they set this thing in motion, and then we have uh, uh, this man named Lewis who, who had got into a little scuffle the night before the, the reenactment over a pool game, and he is cutting this guy on the face. Uh, his name's Calvin. Next day, uh, Calvin's friends are really razzing him about getting his butt handed to him by, by Lewis. That kind of spurs his um, frustration and his anger, and he decides that the best way that I that I can avenge my my honor or, or, or uh, you know uh, re- revive my honor, or whatever, save my honor, is to uh, remove the blank ammunition that was given to me for the reenactment and insert live rounds. And so that's sort of like the kickoff um, to the film, and sort of where we're at is um, right after the big giant skirmish, uh, and we, we catch up with uh, Ben Crow Killer uh, and, and the governor and the mayor, and they're sort of all like, um, you know, like trying to stop the massacre, basically. So uh, check out part one if you haven't. Um, I'm, I did a much better job of explaining that than I just did, but uh, let, let's push forward here. So right after uh, the big skirmish here, one of the deputies finds the gun that Calvin used uh, during the reenactment, and he, they realized that it had been loaded with live rounds. Um, and of course, at that point, they realized that he's actually the one who started it. And for some reason, which is not really clear to me, they decide that they're going to take that gun along with the shell casings and they're going to try to hide them or they're going to try to bury this evidence. So cue to a marauding band of white folks. And they're all in like their Chevy Silverados and they're in Jeep Wranglers and they're hooting and they're whooping. And uh, they're pulling into the, the driveway of this real suburban looking home. Um, and it even has old glory flying out front because, you know, why not? Is there anything more American than that? But a cowboy by the name of Jay, he exits the vehicle and he kind of quickly makes his way inside, uh, almost knocking over his concerned wife in the process. And, you know, just kind of being the white woman that she is, she just starts immediately in on Jay with like, what's going on out there? Like, who are these people? Like, what's happening? I mean, obviously she's concerned because not only does it look like the Republican National Convention outside on her driveway, 
but her husband um, is inside grabbing as much hardware and ammo as he can carry. Um, and then in a scene that's kind of ir- irrefutably comparable to the awful tragedy that befell the jogger uh, Ahmad Aubrey in Georgia, uh, you have Jay's teenage son who is eagerly wishing to join this lynch mob. And against his wife's wishes, um, Jay hands his son a rifle and tells him to go get in the truck. And I'm not really sure the point of this other than maybe he sees this as a, some sort of weird uh, teachable moment. I have no idea what he's thinking, but for some reason he thinks it's a good idea to, to bring his, his, his teenage son along. Um so anyway, um, Jay starts hollering at his wife about kind of what happened, that the savages killed Cal- uh, Calvin, and it's, we're going to go out and get him, and we're going to bring him back in, and da-da-da-da-da. So, uh, while the white boys are getting all geared up, um, we are treated to this beautiful landscape composition um, where we catch up with our, and I'm going to put this in quotes, anti-heroes, riding across the plains on horseback. And I love this scene because obviously the boys here uh, look like they just belong to this country. They are not out of place at all. And I just love this majestic shot, this sweeping shot of the boys riding across the landscape. They just flawlessly, effortlessly just, you know, guiding these, these horses across the plains. Um, they're being trailed in the sky though, by a prop plane and it's being, uh, manned by like these two drunken pilots. So do you really think that this is going to end well? And how do I know that they're, they're drunken or that they're drinking? I, maybe I didn't mention that. Um, I, I know that this because they're literally drinking from a flask, um, as they're flying. So uh, the real shame of this scene, though, is the angle of which they decided to shoot this because it takes place mainly from the point of view of the Cessna. So we're actually looking out through the windshield of the airplane and just sort of robbing the viewer of all that luscious, that beautiful landscape. Uh, But it doesn't take long for the Hutkies to sort of draw a bead on four men, you know, riding across an open plains on horseback. It's kind of hard to hide yourself. So the plane kind of starts dive bombing the skins, um, and it kind of reminded me of something out of Galaga. They're like dipping in and like you know flying up and, and dipping back in again. And the horses, meanwhile, they're like breaking right and they zip up left um, towards the mountains. And I couldn't help but notice that during this whole uh, kind of dust up, Sonny does mutter the phrase "Studis," um, or at least it sounds like he does. I, I literally rewatched the scene back several times over. And man, it sure sounds like he says it to me. I don't know. Um, but could this actually be the first ever point of reference in a film for this word, Studis? Uh, anybody out there want to do the research? I'd love to hear it. Hit me up on Instagram. But uh, this cat and mouse game continues as the drunken co pilot um, successfully tags Dennis through the chest uh, with his pistol. And it's a brutal shot that, that knocks him backwards off the horse. And um, I thought that it actually killed him, but it doesn't. But it certainly wounds him. And I also have to mention, um, you know, up until this happens throughout the whole film, the Indians uh, during this whole time have remained relatively calm. Um, that they're not, you know, they're they're very passive and they're very like concerned more than they are angry or upset. Um, so so yeah, even the boys, they're they're just sort of they did what they did, and now they're 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 not being hostile anymore. They're not being you know um, you know 
know, they're, they're not being violent anymore. They're just sort of trying to remove themselves from the situation completely. But anyway, um, after this happens, um, the I will say this, the, uh, uh, the hostile uh, light switch um, is about to flip. So Skitty and Sunny, they circle back to aid the fallen warrior, but unfortunately they're too late. Um, and kind of seeing the situation with no other option of defense, uh, Sonny draws and knocks an arrow from the quiver that he has slung across his back. And he pulls, he pulls back and he aims and he just lets the thing fly. And he hits the plane just above the door. Now, <laughs> before I move on, uh, I'm kind of torn here between the awesomeness of this, of this idea and the stereotypicalness that's not awesome of this scene. Um, because it's sort of like a nod to like your, your typical John Ford Western. Um, I mean, what I'm, what I'm saying here is, you know, we saw Skitty swiping some pistols earlier in the film, right? So why not use them here? Why, why, why do we have to have a native man, um, use a bow and arrow? Is it some sort of symbolic idea? Um, what's, what's the point of that? Um, and just by including that little nugget, I feel that maybe it adds a, a maybe a layer of irony to the story. I don't know, like um, you know, ha by having Sonny use the pistols is what I'm talking about, because here you have those pistols that were used to kill dozens, if not hundreds, of Native Americans um, back in the day, and now those same pistols are being used to kill outside rebel rousers. So I think that would have been a much more um, richer uh, 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 statement. Um, anyway. But um, or maybe even during the chaotic dust up, maybe they left them back at camp or, or maybe they're still uh, have blank ammunition in them. Who knows? But they're just sort of forgotten about. I don't really know. Like it's never these pistols are never mentioned. But um, and I guess maybe like, a, 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 you know, here here you also have like a, maybe a comment, like I said earlier, on the uh, formulaic notion of like these um, prehistory native arsenal versus modern arsenal um i don't know it's 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 cool but it's also really silly at the same time but anyways um after sunny flanks the shot um just above the co-pilot's head um the plane dive bombs to avoid like this uh like another surface to aerial assault and this gives sunny ample time to reload so he he, he pulls another arrow he draws back and he gets a bead on his target and as the plane is kind of sweeping in for another go, um, Sonny lets the arrow fly. But this time, he connects right through the pilot's throat. Um, and it kind of reminded me of that story, uh, the William Tell story. Isn't I think that's it, isn't it? The, the William Tell where the... Isn't that the jabroni that shot the uh, apple through off the other jabroni's head? But whatever comparison I'm trying to make here, um, he sticks the dude like right in the Adam's apple. And he like grabs, he lets go of the, the, the stick and he grabs his throat and he's gagging and he's choking and he completely loses control of the plane. And again, you have to sort of suspend some, some, some belief here because I, I don't think that a man in the 80s, especially a man like Sonny, um, would have the necessary skill to shoot not not one arrow but but two arrows into the cabin but but somehow he does but um and if you're a fan of films at all uh, at this point you, you kind of know where this is where this is going so maverick and goose they end up sort of crashing in the field upside down and after that happens sunny rides up on the wreckage and he sees the two men just dead 
And it's a cool shot because, um, not, not because the men are dead, but because the way Sonny is framed in the shot, you can kind of, you're, we're on one side of the plane and we're looking out through the uh, side door windows. Um, and then you have Sonny ride up and he, he dismounts off his horse and he walks over to him. But the whole time he's like framed by the window. It's really cool. Um, maybe I'll post a pic on uh, Instagram so you can sort of see what I'm talking about. But the next scene, uh, we, we find the boys um, hiding in what appears to be like this abandoned horse barn or something. And we see Dennis who, who got shot off the horse by the plane. Um, he's being doctored by Bubba, and um, Bubba also is one of the, the natives that rode out with him at, uh, from the beginning of the film. And he's pleading with Sonny, like, man, we have to go back. We have to do the right thing. We have to turn ourselves in. Hopefully they'll understand that this is a big misunderstanding. We're going to get a lawyer, and we're going to try to straighten this mess out. Sonny, maybe I should go back. If you guys need a witness, I can talk to your father. Get you guys a good lawyer. That gray-haired guy from Wyoming? He'd be a natural for the case. Yeah, I seen that guy on TV. The guy's a natural bullshitter. Okay, Bubba, you go back. But you don't surrender to nobody but Indian cops. Understand? Okay. Listen, Bubba. They'll be chasing us west. You ride north three, four miles before cutting back, you hear? Okay. Everything's gonna be okay. You guys got my word. Okay. So the plan is for Bubba. He's going to ride back into town and he's going to surrender to nobody but tribal police, which makes sense. He's also going to try to negotiate some type of surrender for the boys, which makes sense. And while he's doing that, the boys, um, they're going to ride south to a sporting goods store and they're going to load up with camping gear, which makes sense. And they're going to get Dennis to a doctor. Once again, smart idea, boys. But the point of, or the, the, the kicker to this uh, end of this is Skitty saying, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to go get some camping gear. We're going to get Dennis to a doctor and we're going to get machine guns. Um, <laughs> that's what he says in the clip. I wish I would have played it. But he goes, yeah, well, we'll get some machine guns, lots of machine guns. I mean, they have machine guns. Why not? Why, why, why not us? So that sounds com- completely reasonable, right? You just walk into any sort of Walmart or you walk into to Dick's, uh, you know, uh, and just say, uh, let me see what you have in a machine gun. Um, but, hey, the, the 80s was, was, a, was a wonderful time, um, relatives. It was a wonderful time. But uh, that night, the boys decide they're going to make themselves a war party. Uh, and, be, and before I play this next clip, uh, let me let me tell you how um, war party is defined according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary. Um, a war party is defined as a group of American Indians on the warpath. That's right. Well, let me let me read that definition to you again. A group of American Indians on the warpath. What the f does that mean? Like, tell me, what does that mean? Uh, I cannot make this up, y'all. And um, uh, you know, I, I don't claim to be any kind of, of um, historian, and I'm certainly not an expert on, on Native culture, but I can pretty much promise you 100% that the notion of these Natives in this film creating a war party pact by doing some kind of like horse shit, uh, treehouse, blood brother ritual, uh, that, that never happened. Um, this is just another one of those romanticized cliches that you see, um, you know, ignorantly uh, hanging on, on giant oil paintings in Western Heritage Museums or places like Wooler Rock. 
um, or, or maybe you'll see them on the, the covers of like dime store novels or, or paperback books or, or comic books or, or what have you. Um, I personally just think that, that the ritual uh, of going into battle together uh, would constitute enough for a group to consider themselves to be um, true war brothers um, or Tustanuggies. Um, so I don't know. But let me play the clip and, and then we'll get back to the film. You guys know anything about making a war party? Yeah, what you gotta do is you gotta build a sweat lodge. Or we could cut our thumbs and mix a little blood. Nothing big, just a little cut. You don't need to do that. Just make up your mind and say the words. But it ain't something you do lightly. Us or them, we stick together until the end. Nobody breaks the oath. Nobody turns back. We go down, we go down together. Brothers. You fuck with my brothers, you fuck with me. Yeah. This clip clearly shows how depressingly little these boys know about their actual culture. I mean, um, you know, earlier in the film, they, they seemed more at home just trying on blue tuxedos with ruffly shirts and planning for setting Sonny's wedding and... Um, but now <laughs> that the shit has really hit the fan, uh, um, they got to make a war party. And, and truth be told, they don't really know how. They don't know what they're doing. Um, Skitty suggests that they, ha they, they maybe we need to make a sweat lodge um, and, and cut their thumbs a little bit. Uh, not, not a lodge, just a little bit. Uh, and mix the blood together. Okay. So... <laughs> The sweat, uh, the sweat lodge, that, that might be a good idea. But like I said, the rest is just straight out of Hollywood and has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with Blackfeet culture. And, and thank God, thank, thank creator that, that Tim Sampson um, is there to set them straight. Um, he informs the boys, you know, you don't have to do anything like that. You just got to declare ourselves a band of brothers. Um, I, I do respect um, the fact that the filmmakers here tried their best to um, negate the notion of some sort of symbolic war party ceremony. I just love the fact that they don't even go, go into it. They don't build a sweat. They don't, um, they don't cut their thumbs. They, you don't see any type of ceremony. Um, you know, they, they talk about it. And then finally, you know, Tim Sampson, he says, like, I was just to declare ourselves a war party and that's it so kudos to the filmmakers for for for, uh, for, for doing that um, so so the three warriors they, they stand up they link arms and they state uh, us or them and then boom you got yourselves a war party and that's all you need to do uh, the next scene that we see is a vigilante posse of white folks um, um, and they're milling around the plane wreckage and you have a bunch of dudes with like toothpicks and flannel shirts and cowboy hats and, and trucker hats and really ironic gay mustaches. And they're all armed with like pitchforks and, and shotguns and torches as they lament over their fallen friends, uh, the drunken pilots from the plane. And they're, they're quoting the Bible, of course. Uh, I bet you can't guess which, which verse. I don't even know what verse it is, uh, to be honest. But it's the old eye for an eye adage. And uh, at this point, um, the men hoist their, their rifles into the air. Um, they're ready to um, exact revenge on these old savages. And they kind of create a war party of their own, I, I guess, so to speak. 
And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, if I ever have to make a war party, um, I already know the brothers that I'm going to ride into battle with. And uh, I'm going to read a quote from the Bible of old rugged Bo Skoden. Um, Uncle Bo Skoden, um, instead of an I for an I, I'm going to say that it's an A for an A. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you don't get that reference, go check out my bros over at Toke Signals Podcast. Uh, listen to a few episodes of them, and they'll tell you all about old Uncle Bo Skoden. But anyway, uh, we catch up with Bubba, and, and he's riding back towards town. Um, and, and for some reason, he's clad in nothing but buckskin leggings. Um, but he has like a bone breastplate on, and, and he's carrying like an old school uh, tomahawk. And I guess it's just this idea of, of a you know a historical native in in a, in a contemporary setting, so to speak. Because um, the part I like about this is that he's wearing like the set of old school like Sony Walkman headphones. And so I really kind of like that, like I said, just tying like old old culture in with new culture. It was just a brilliant little touch that probably most nobody else would would would, would, would pick up on. But anyway, um, he comes uh, riding up over the hillside, um, and he rides headfirst into the marauding band of Chevy trucks. And um, sort of noticing that, that they're all armed, um, Bubba reverses his direction, and, and he tries to ride back over the ridge from where he had just come from. And as he does that, out of nowhere, there's like this other gaggle of whooping cowboys, and they're they're in Jeep Wranglers, and they they cut him off, and the, he's basically surrounded now, um, as they all pile out of their vehicles, and they begin kind of like thumping him with the butts of their rifles, and of course, Bubba, he has using his only defense, um, he has that tomahawk, so he uh, swings at a couple of domes, and, and and that really just sort of pisses him off even more. Uh, and then one of them finally just takes a shot at him, uh, like he shoots him and literally like knocks him off his horse. And the man that shoots him, um, his name is Hart, um, and, and he walks up and he just taunts Bubba. And then he rears back, uh, Bubba does, this is awesome, and, and Bubba rears back after um, this guy's heart smart mouths him. And, and Bubba rears back and like pops him across the jaw. And it's, it's awesome because his aviators like turn sideways. It's freaking hilarious. It's not the smartest move uh, on Bubba's part just, you know, because of his situation. <laughs> uh, but it's just awesome nonetheless. But after Hart kind of, you know, regains his composure, um, he pulls out one of those survival knives, you know, the ones that like Rambo had. And um, he, he lifts his, he lifts him up by the, by the head, by his hair, and he scalps him. I mean, holy crap, like that, that, that sort of comes out of nowhere. Um, and sadly, um, it takes us 15 episodes, um, but we finally got one, y'all, like an on-screen scalping. And, and I'm really kind of pissed off, though, a little bit that, that it's the white guy that does the scalping. But I also think that it's a little ironic considering that they are the ones, the French trappers are the ones who um, brought that to, uh, to, to, native, uh, to native areas or the act of scalping. And, um, you know, an interesting point on that though is you know that the scalping is an act of violence um from a from a whole other century right um but hart um he has no trouble uh calling this practice up in the present it's like he's been doing it for years um he just 
lifts Bubba by the head and cuts his scalp off while Bubba's still alive. And the very fact that um, he removes the, the Walkman headphones from around his neck, um, once again, um, clearly um, letting us know that this is not uh, something that takes place in the past, that this is a contemporary um, um, act of violence. And um, so, yeah, again, I, I don't appreciate the scalping in the film, but I do appreciate them trying to, like, you know, let us know that it's um, historically uh, a historical act of violence. And then here it is happening right here in the 20th century. So after that horrific act, um, we cue to a helicopter landing at the Binger Mountain airfield. And out pops this blonde reporter and makes for a waiting car. Um, it seems that there's a press conference that she's running late to. And again, um, scripts of the 80s were, were really well well structured because um, it's this little scene that's going to give us a little bit of information through a character uh, about what's happening in the story. The Indians had no firearms. Six live rounds were fired from the dead man's weapon, one of which killed Lewis Manshadow. What was that name again? Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody just spilled the beans on the whole operation. <laughs> Here they were trying to pin this whole thing on the natives, and uh, yikes, somebody just uh, ruined that. So, uh, of course, the press now is alerted to what really happened uh, during the um, uh, reenactment. And the press is booming with, with wanting to know all this information. So we follow the blonde reporter, and she goes into this press room. And there's all, like, this hustle and bustle of things going on. And the TV is blaring, and once again, um, it's sort of feeding us a little information about how there's, like, this full-fledged manhunt, and the native men are missing, and da-da-da-da-da. So, uh, speaking of missing Native Americans, um, here we go with, with uh, the fugitive, and I'm going to put that in quotes, the fugitive natives. We cut to them, and they're uh, quietly like breaking into a sporting goods shop in town. And conveniently, at the exact same time that they're doing this, there just so happens to be a patrol officer making a drive-by. Um, and um, he, he kind of notices that there's some broken glass uh, laying on the ground at the front of the door. And so with a flashlight in hand, he's like gets out of his car and he's shining the light this way and that. And he's looking through the broken glass uh, door and he, the spotlight or the flashlight uh, beam lands on Tim Sampson. And, and he's putting on what I, it looks like maybe a, a, a hockey jersey or something, uh, maybe like a bathrobe. Like I'm not really sure what it is. I was like watching this and I'm like, what is he wearing? Because he doesn't even show up, I don't think, in the rest of the film. But anyway, the, the, the cop swiftly like pulls his gun out, and then he's kind of ambushed from behind by Sonny and Skitty. And uh, the boys take him to the back, and they handcuff him to a chair. And this scene is really, really keen, though. And what I mean by that is just the way that the men treat their hostage. Because in like the true native fashion or, or true story fashion here, uh, these 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 guys they're not out to hurt this guy. You know what I mean? Um, Skitty even asks him several times um, as they're handcuffing him to the chair if he's comfortable. 
Um, and then Skitty even makes some small talk um, about recognizing the man through his younger sister. And you could easily see um, this conversation happening over like a round of beers just by the way they're casually talking to each other. Uh, you almost forget that the man is actually a captive. And um, this is the part there uh, where I was talking about in um, the first part of this podcast, part one, how um, Hollywood... Um, you know, portrays the, the Hollywood half-breed as this jerk stereotype. And I talked about that, and I mentioned how, um, you know, normally, um, you know, mixed bloods or half-bloods are portrayed as vile or stupid or mean or two-faced or just real kind of, you know, uh, real, like, angry or, or whatever. Um, but in this scene, um, you know, you have to think that the boys have every right to be furious with, with what happened. And they have every right to be uh, furious with the law because they're not understanding. They only, want, they only see them as fugitives. They only see them as the murderers. And um, so they have every right to sort of take out that angst and take out that anger on this cop. But they're not. They don't. In fact, Skitty is so empathetic. And like I said, he even asks the man about his sister. So take that, Hollywood. Uh, then Sonny, um, asks, uh, for the man, he's like, Hey man, do you have any money? Like, I need some money. And he kind of starts looking through his pockets for, for some money. And the officer replies, uh, yeah, man, I got, I got like 20 bucks. And Sonny goes like, uh, well, I don't even need that much. I only need some change to make a phone call. So again, um, this clearly states that the boys are not out to rob this dude blind. They're not out to even harm him at, at all. Uh, they, they're simply taking what they need. You know what I mean? Not all that they can carry, and that's 100% ended way. We don't take, uh, uh, you know, we don't we don't try to take everything. We only take what we need. So again, beautiful uh, little uh, nugget there that the way that that was written. So the phone call that that Sonny makes though um, is not to his parents. It's not to the, the to the police. It's not to uh, uh, the newspaper. He he calls his fiance. <laughs> Uh, and talks to him, not, not talks to her, excuse me, not about what's going on or, or how they are. He's inquiring about the wedding. Everybody's upset, Sonny. Father Donner, you held a special mass. My father says he's got no choice. He's canceling the wedding. Plus the hotel says we'll only turn half the money. That's because we booked the room two months in advance. I ain't got time to explain what happened, Crystal. Hey, trust me, everything's going to be all right. How awesome is that? <laughs> oh man! <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, you know, so, so, <laughs> so here you have this this man uh, who is the subject of this statewide manhunt for allegedly killing another man, and he's more pissed off about not getting his full refund back on the hotel that he booked. <laughs> That is, that is like, that is like classic, classic like native shit right there. I mean, honestly, uh, we're we're more scared of of what our women might do to us uh, when we get back from being on the lamb than than anything that that Johnny Law may have in store for us. So uh, anyway, I also have to to mention really fact uh, one one of the aspects that that bugs me about this film is the New York accent. The New York accent uh, fades in and out uh, throughout this entire film. Uh, c- clearly, both both gentlemen are, are, are from from the East. You you hear Billy Worth uh, just like he's straight out of Brooklyn. Uh, Kevin Dillon, same thing. 
Uh, and so that they're talking with this real thick New York accent in some scenes and then some scenes it's not there and then other scenes it's there. And then sometimes even like um, within the same scene like this one, he fades in and out of, of the accent and it just it takes me right out of the film. Um, and it, But it makes me laugh. So does it entertain him? Absolutely. One hundred percent. So anyways, um, after he gets off the phone. Uh, Sonny goes back and, and relays the plan uh, to the rest of the boys. Uh, he tells them that, hey, we're, we're going to meet the girls at the Warbonnet Lounge. And so then um, it is decided that all three men are going to head out and, and, and try, to, try to have a rendezvous at this, at this bar. Back at the sheriff's office, however, um, we see a deputy and the sheriff, and they're consulting with a tribal police officer. And the tribal police is uh, relaying information to them about the white vigilante lynch mob that's in hot pursuit of our boys. And to his credit, the sheriff, uh, the white sheriff explains, you know, like those, those men have no business being on tribal land. And he gives permission to the tribal police, um, you know, if you see that mob, you need to arrest them immediately for trespassing. And I'm not so uh, – to me, I, I don't know if he's if – it's, it's not so much that he's interested in doing the right thing um, or if it's more about him trying to keep the lid on the pot, so to speak, because tensions could boil over at any moment at this point. Uh, but during this conversation, the phone rings, and the tribal officer um, picks up the receiver, and um, we hear the news about the break-in at the sporting goods store. So now the police are aware that the boys um, have guns, and um, obviously lots of them. So while all that's going on, um, we cut back to the boys and under the cover of trees and with helicopters kind of dramatically circling above um, with their spotlights, our heroes um, take some time to reflect uh, kind of what's, what's going on and, and what's happened to them. And they begin to kind of wonder aloud about, you know, people back home on the res. And they, they start kind of wondering about, you know, about Lewis and Dennis's mothers. They're worried about, you know, if they know what happened to them. They're, they're worried about their girlfriends. They're worried about their fiancés. But most importantly here, it's a pretty touching moment where they're, they're kind of worried about their future. Um, you know, we, we realize in this moment that, you know, these are just boys. You know, these are these are young men, 20, 21, 22, uh, that are just way in over their heads. You know what I mean? It's like one day they think they have, they have the entire world figured out that they're just drinking and they're snagging and they're playing pool and just doing what what youths do. And then in a blink of an eye, they're like literally running for their lives. So I just really like this little tender moment here kind of gives a little bit of depth to to these boys and, and kind of like I said it's just it's a really cool moment um Sonny um decides you know that hey I'm going to take watch so that you uh Skitty and Tim Sampson so you guys can get some much needed rest and then the plan is that as soon as the sun sets um they're going to make a break for uh for the war bonnet lounge and kind of rendezvous with the boys so we cut back now to <clears throat> kind of where we see the local police and um, the tribal police 
and they're pulling Dennis's body out of a river. It seems to uh, suggest that, that they, after they scalped him, they uh, took his body and, and dumped it in a river. Um, and there's a lot of concern here also about the fact that he was scalped. And in fact, um, the sheriff here um, knows that, you know, if word gets out about this, that there is going to be a lot more than just three pissed off skins that he's going to have to contend with. He's going to have to deal with the entire reservation. Say again? Say the boy is dead. From what? Look, there's no question. It's a scalping. The whole top of his head's gone. I don't know. She's an Indian. Who can tell? Who else knows about this? Just you. Figured you wanted to keep a lid on this thing right now. So in that scene, um, there, there's a, a real elderly um, Indian woman there um, that has discovered the body. And um, that's, that's who he was referring to um, in that clip. And um, it's sort of unclear uh, exactly who knows about the you know Dennis being scalped and they, they want to try to keep a, a, a lid on that they want to try to keep that out of the public spotlight and so um, the sheriff here is intentionally you know keeping all of that information away not only from the public but also the tribal police because the tribal police are there on the scene but they are surveying the wreckage of the plane and um, they're also pulling Dennis's body um, out, out of the river so they, 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 they scalped him and then they dumped him in the river so uh, meanwhile, um, while this is going on, we have the vigilante mob, the, the white vigilante mob in their trucks and stuff. They're cruising the back roads and they're sort of continuing their pursuit of, of our boys. And um, the group breaks through the tree lines and they're met like bumper to bumper with a uh, squad of patrol cars. And then a police chopper kind of you know zooms in and like hovers down in front of like this little cannonball run they have going on. And uh, the white boys are immediately kind of, you know, uh, gathered up and they're hauled into the police station. And once they get there, um, the white folks um, immediately began instructing their portly wives about, you know, let's let's get the lawyers on the phone. And and, and one of the men, uh, Hart, the one that, that, that Dennis smacked in the mouth, he goes, get my dentist on the phone, too, which is awesome. I thought that was so comical. Here's this guy, you know, it's. It's, I don't know. He's worried about his tooth getting knocked out. It was just freaking awesome. So, um, you know, always looking uh, for, for someone or some sort of situation to exploit. Uh, we see the blonde TV news reporter interviewing Sonny and Skitty's fiancés. And uh, they're, they're, of course, painting the boys with the old, you know, ah, shucks, uh, they wouldn't hurt a fly brush. You know the one I'm talking about, the one that the, you know, you always see it on the local news. You know, anytime you see a story about somebody kind of snapping or going off, um, you know, they're never painted as, as you know, these angry, uh, you know, like, well, I knew something over there was going on. It's always, you know, it's like, well, I never knew. I had no idea any of that was going on over there. So anyway, long story short, um, but I did think that it was funny during this uh, little scene here is when the reporter asks Dolly if she had any words for Skitty. And she replies, um, you know, watch your butt out there, Skitty. There, there's, there's a lot of crooks out there looking to make you famous. And, and I love that because she's literally like um, not only pointing or, or giving the finger, I, I should say, to, to the entire world. Uh, white community um she's given the finger to even like the press uh you know uh, like you know like 
riling everybody up, basically, and stirring the pot, the, the racial pot that the, the news media loves to do. And so I just I love that little line there where she's like, you know, like, be careful because they're, they're going to make an example out of you, basically. So speaking of middle fingers, however, though, uh, we catch up with the um, blonde investigative news reporter, the one that we saw got get off the helicopter. And um, she's sort of casually walking through a hospital morgue and she's not giving uh, one F uh, about how much, uh, you know, about trespassing or, or anything else. The only thing that she's concerned about is getting down to, to the truth of the story. And so um, she pulls open a drawer of the morgue and wow, bingo, as, as luck would have it, it's Dennis. And she notices that his head um, has been scalped or his, his, his hair has been scalped. And she quickly produces this you know, old school 35 millimeter Nikon and, and she's snapping a few pictures before just kind of casually rolling him closed. And you know what? Speaking of, I gotta just say, like, this is a complete Hollywood thing, right? Like, there's no way that, like, these hospital morgues are just open to the public or not. There's no, they just have such easy access because um, I'd put money on the fact that they just don't leave the morgues open like that, right? Um, that that has to be a thing in movies. We see it in Ghost Dance. You see it in countless Hollywood movies. Uh, these morgues just literally unprotected to the point where anybody, um, you know, age or, or, or whatever can just coolly stroll in and, and pull out some drawers and take some selfies and then just leave undetected. But... Meanwhile, now we're back at the police station, and um, old Jay Stivick, uh, that, that guy that, that we were talking about, uh, he is called from his holding cell um, to talk to the sheriff. And it seems that the sheriff um, informs him that Jay's young son has sung like a canary about all of the happenings of the vigilante mob. And I don't know if you remember or not, but I had talked about how um, Jay wanted his son to go along with, uh, uh, with, the, with the mob. Um, and so just the fact that, that, that this kid spilled the beans on his father uh, just makes him snap. And, and Jay literally, like, literally like slaps the confederate flag trucker hat like right off of his head so um next up i'll just say this there, there's a lot that goes on in the next two or three minutes um so first thing that we see is is the boys and they're riding out across the plains two there's a man in like a, a skull tobacco jacket um snuff jacket and he tails the fiancés as they leave their house and then three, we have like this montage of everybody sort of showing up at the, the War Bonnet Lounge at practically the same time. And uh, coincidentally, of course, coincidentally. So uh, the boys um, decide that they're going to send Skitty over to uh, check things out. And so he's walking around like this hotel bar and he's like knocking on the windows and he doesn't, you know, see any, see anybody. And then, um, kind of like this moment of brilliance he's like i bet i know where she's at she's in the bar dolly loves bars i bet she's in there so uh skitty then goes around and uh goes into the bar the war bonnet lounge there while Sonny makes his way back through the trees and they're going to wait it out and, and and watch what's going on with um, tim sampson and uh, uh skitty finally links up with dolly and crystal in the hotel bar and when, when they meet, it's uh, very casually, he asks her to dance so that um, he can get a chance to kind of talk to her. We're going again. What's the matter? 
They killed Baba Madversky. They took his scalp. How do you mean took his scalp? It's in the paper. I saw the picture. All right, get Crystal. Meet me up by the car. change of plan skitty is pissed and by the way i've been calling bubba dennis this entire time and i'm not going to go back and fix that so i'm so sorry ah idiot uh but anyway um skitty he grabs dolly by the arm and he begins to escort her out when they literally bump into sunny and sunny no more gets the words out like hey man we got to scram uh, before the cops who have been trailing the girls, they come, you know, busting through the front door, uh, quickly thinking on his feet and providing us with not only the first but the second bar fight. Yeah, uh, Sonny grabs a bar stool and he, he smashes out the front glass, uh, making an escape fairly easy. Uh, but it doesn't last too long, though, because a squad of cop cars come racing all up and then they're firing at the men. And Tim Sampson uh, comes running out of the woods, and he's blasting his shotgun a few more times. And then there's like this all-out like gun battle ensues. And uh, during during all of this, um, you know, the mayhem, the sort of back and forth between shots being fired, the the boys somehow escape back into the woods, but not before uh, Tim Sampson um, sadly uh, takes a bullet right in the gut. But the chase is definitely on. And while all of this is going on, um, we cut back to Sonny's mom and dad, and they're sitting in the kitchen, and they're reading the newspaper, and just basically worrying about the uh, whole outcome of all of this. I can't take that pill. I can't sleep with this. Oh, God. Please don't let them kill my son. Please, God. You'll come through all right. No more shooting. The governor gave us promise. Promises? Bastards, lying bastards. All my life I've tried to understand the white man. Never learning a goddamn thing. I love this scene um, because it's kind of discussing um, police violence um, towards indigenous people. Um, even before it was actually a thing. Um, and now I have to say, um, you know, like allegations of excessive police force against African-Americans ha have captured the nation's attention um, in recent times. And while I do see, uh, you know, that as a giant, uh, you know, important obstacle in relations today, um, I, I feel that it's at least fair to, you know, let's not overlook the problems that, that, native ha that natives have when they're also dealing with, with, with the police. Um, according to data from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, Native Americans um, are killed in police encounters at a higher rate than any other racial or ethnic group. Yet rarely do these deaths gain the national spotlight like others. Um, this lack of attention has prompted some ad, you know, advocates to start uh, social media campaigns uh, reminiscent to um, Black Lives Matter. There was a segment on CNN um, a few years back, um, a man by the name of, of Daniel Sheehan, 
um, who is the general counsel for the Lakota's People Law Project, um, he's quoted as saying, uh, Native American people are basically invisible to most of the people in this country. Because for every one million Native Americans um, between the years of 1999 and 2015, um, an average of three died annually as a result of legal intervention. And this is all according to the CNN review of the CDC data broken down by race. The vast majority of these deaths um, were police shootings. But there was a few that were attributed to other causes, including manhandling. And that mortality rate is 12% higher than it is for African Americans and three times um, the rate of whites. Even though an annual rate of death is higher, <clears throat> the number of Native American deaths is relatively small. An estimated 22 Native Americans and Native Alaskans died um, at the hands of police in 2016, and another 18 have died so far this year in 2021-2022. And this is all according to Fatal Encounters, which is an online database compiled by a former editor at the Reno News and Review in Nevada. It is widely considered um, one of the most complete sources on deaths resulting from police encounters. Uh, I have a few examples um, uh, here. Um, one of them includes the tragic shooting of a 14-year-old boy in Wisconsin in 2017. Uh, a sheriff's deputy shot and killed 14-year-old Jason Perro um, on the Bad River Reservation. A report by the Wisconsin Department of Justice said that uh, Perro refused to drop a butcher knife and then lunged twice at the deputy. Um, the State Department of Justice uh, said the boy actually called 911 on him, uh, himself, um, and he gave his own physical description. And the Associated Press uh, reported that Perro's family questioned the police account and says that the boy was home from school sick. We also have uh, Marley Kanosh. Um, she lost a brother to police gunfire back in 2012. Corey Kanosh was the passenger in a police chase involving a drunken driver. Uh, when the car stopped, he fled the police on foot and was shot while resisting arrest. The county attorney concluded that uh, the forensic evidence and dispatch logs supported the officer's account of events. But the family complains that um, he was left overnight at the scene and without medical care. Kanosh now runs a Facebook page called Native Lives Taken by Police to raise awareness of such uh, causes as her brothers or such cases as her brothers. She said that it can be um, hard to create and sustain uh, sustain attention, you know, attention for, for Native American cases. Um, in part because uh, many take place in small communities or more remote areas. Um, and in June, a member of Black, Elk, uh, Black Elk's tribe, Zachary Bearheels, died after a violent encounter with police. Um, I'm going to kind of read you this one really quick. Um, on June 4th, to, uh, 2018, Zachary Bearheels was 29. He was on his way home to Oklahoma when he got kicked off a bus in Omaha, Nebraska. When he failed to make it home, his mother, uh, Renita Chalapaw, called police to let them know that her son was lost and suffered from bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Omaha police found Bear Hills uh, shortly after midnight at a convenience store, and the department reported that officers put him on the phone with Chalapaw. 
I heard him say, Mama, Mama, and she later told the Omaha World Herald. She could tell from his voice that he was off of his medications. And according to the police investigation, officers agreed to take Bear Hills to the bus station. They handcuffed him, and they put him in the back of a police cruiser. But somehow, he slipped out of the car. That led to a scuffle. Police video shows the officer shock Bear Hills repeatedly with a taser. They drag him by his belt and ponytail, and they punch him repeatedly in the head and neck. He was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. The three officers involved were found not guilty of assault with a deadly weapon, and today they continue to serve the Omaha Police Department. Their only punishment was they were required to attend a two-hour refresher class at a training academy. Uh, Zachary Bearhills committed no crime, uh, Douglas County Attorney Donald Klein said at a press conference. Zachary Bearhills was simply a human being suffering from a severe mental illness that was quite obvious to anyone who came in contact with him. Our laws should protect those who are most vulnerable, particularly those who suffer from mental illness. So I didn't intend to, you know, kind of follow down this rabbit hole or, or I'm not really here to start any kind of um, major debate on the subject. So apologies for that. Um, but I do think that it's important that we need to bring awareness to um, these kind of, these types of issues, uh, you know, when it's concerning uh, people in our, in our communities. And I obviously, I just have a dumb podcast and I, I have no answers to any of these unending problems. Um, the only thing that, that I can do and will do is um, you know offer support to those who feel that their voice isn't being heard and um, if it's if that is you or you feel that that is you or, or you know somebody like that um, I'm just letting you guys know that there are places that you can turn to for help and support so thank you next up we see the sheriff and the tribal police um, and they have employed the help of a white tracker a white bounty hunter and, and a mercenary group and they're all on horseback and uh, they're, they're led by none other than uh, knockout character actor uh, M. Emmett Walsh. And uh, his best friend, uh, heartthrob, friend of the show, uh, Rodney A. Grant. Uh, Walsh appears, um, you know, kind of slightly, his character, I should say, not Walsh himself. Uh, he appears, you know, slightly unbalanced. He, he's kind of unhinged. Um, he's like a rogue, you know, um, and he's just completely ego-driven. And I have no idea why, um, because most of the real tracking here is done by Rodney A. Grant, um, the Crow Scout. Uh, Native audiences probably won't find it strange that an Indian would be tracking other Indians. Um, this is an explicit reminder that, um, you know, that, that Indians uh, can't be lumped into just one, one single category. Uh, but the posse um, as a whole, however, is a mix of, uh, of Hutki and Stajati men, um, you know, kind of dressed in these long overrider coats, carrying rifles. Once again, it, it's a pretty neat visual um, that harkens back to um, like old westerns of the, uh, of the 70s, 60s and 70s. The sheriff um, reminds them, um, for some reason, I have no idea why, that they have 48 hours to, to complete this mission and there's no shooting allowed. Um, that these men must be brought in alive. Um, the leader uh, of this posse um, quips and, uh, you know, hey, well, we're going to do our best. Um, you know, we're going to do our best. Uh, that's what you guys deserve. And then they, uh, uh, he kicks the horse in the gut and they sort of ride off um, heroically uh, into, into, the, into the sunset or the fading sun or whatever, whatever. Um, but unaware uh, of the goings on in town, 
Um, we see the boys, and, and they're holed up on the side of a mountain. They're uh, once again kind of collecting their thoughts and trying to make sense of like what's going on, and just kind of basically uh, working on trying to figure out where they should go from here. We got a six-man posse tracking us. Let's go. Looks like an Indian out front. That guy's a crow. I've seen him in some war down at the fights in Bozeman. His name's Pete. He tracks with Colin Dittweiler. The guy who ran down the Mexican convicts. <coughs> yeah, they keep riding this direction, they're gonna catch some land. Let's get out of here. So, we learned that the Crow Scout um, is, a, is a crow man named Pete and that he tracks for a man named Colin um, Dittweiler. Um, and he runs uh, sort of like this bounty hunter outfit of some sorts. Um, he's like the best in the business. He's like the Boba Fett of, of, of the prairie, I guess. Um, but again, um, uh, Dittweiler is played by legendary character actor M. Emmett Walsh. And for those of you uh, not in the know, um, Walsh has made a solid, solid career of playing um, corrupt Southern cops, uh, uh, deadly uh, crooks and, and, and henchmen, um, and even some zany uh, comedic roles since the early 1970s. He's been in countless classic films from Little Big Man to Slapshot to Steve Martin's The Jerk to Serpico, Straight Time. Blade Runner, Raising Arizona, and Harry and the Hendersons, um, you know, just to name a few. Uh, but as soon as the boys realize, um, you know, that they've done, you know, sick the junkyard dog on their asses, uh, they, they hightail it out of there. And then we get like this pseudo horse, this horse chase. Um, you have uh, Pete the tracker, and he, he climbs off of his horse, and he picks up a blade of grass, and he smells it, and he goes, it's blood. <laughs> and so, uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, uh, Tim Sampson, uh, he took a slug of the belly back at the bar, and um, he's slowly kind of like bleeding out. So the posse, um, you know, because of this, his wound, it gives the posse uh, the ability to sort of track him or blood track him, um, kind of like a, a wounded deer. Um, Tim Sampson, he, he's in pretty bad shape at this point. Um, he can barely uh, stay on his horse, and he's telling the fellas, you know, like, guys, like, my right leg, like, it's going numb, and, and he's, his breath is labored, and he's, you know, having a hard time um, staying upright. And, um, you know, but he makes Skitty and, and Sonny, you know, you got to promise me, you know, no matter what, please, please don't leave me. I don't want to die out here. But uh, back at City Hall, uh, we have an angry mob of natives, and they have gathered near the front steps to protest the ongoing um, pursuit and investigation. And the mayor uh, steps out of his office to issue uh, some sort of statement on behalf of the, eternal, uh, the Attorney General in Washington, D.C. So, so now we know that the, 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 the uh, national uh, government is involved. Um, and it's sort of annoyed at the reaction from the crowd. He, he doesn't get the reaction that, that he was hoping for. Uh, the mayor uh, immediately goes over to voice his frustration at Ben Crowkiller, uh, Sonny's father. And he demands, you know, uh, you guys stop all this protesting at once. And uh, Ben, at this point, 
he's completely uh, fed up with all this poppycock. And he's, he steps across the, the line and he joins the protest. And so I, I can imagine, you know, if you're in a theater full of natives, um, when he, he makes that, that, that move um, over from, from, from white side to back to the native side, I can't imagine the, the cheers that probably went up in, in the theater at that time. I have a telegram here from Washington, D.C. Your restraint under these most difficult circumstances has been deeply appreciated. Respectfully yours, Wallace B. Cosgrove, Deputy Assistant Attorney General, United States Department of Justice. I think that, Doctor. How built you've been? We've got to put a plug in this situation. It's too damn late, Mayor. Come on, Bill! troops out here. We don't need federal intervention on our land. We never had it before, and we don't never need it now. Hell yeah, that's awesome. You can definitely tell uh, Dennis Banks, uh, he's recalling, you know, his old uh, AIM protest days here in this scene for sure. And I'm also sure that at this point, um, like I said, native filmgoers had to be whooping in the aisles. Um, so I just I love that, uh, or that, that idea that I have. <laughs> But anyway, um, we, we cut to some Army Reserve officers, and they're sort of like barking into a walkie-talkie about securing the perimeter of City Hall. And that's when we see this native dude um, sort of like Jackie Chan his way out of the window. Um, he's like doing some really hardcore, like, uh, what's it called, parkour. Uh, he's like flipping and, and doing uh, some, some things. He, make, he basically goes from the window to the ground in about five seconds, and then he like hightails it into like this waiting car. And... Um, the mayor at this point is trying to gain regain control of the crowd and as he's doing so this explosion detonates and the entire first floor of city hall uh, sends the protesters all scrambling and as the building becomes like this raging inferno uh, old drunk Saginaw Grant kind of stumbling in and he's like laughing and he's pointing at the giant American flag that is on fire and Freddie, um, you know, hands a bottle, uh, hands his bottle of whiskey to Ben, and um, suggests like, "Hey, like, maybe, maybe now you'll 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 start drink, have a drink with me, or something like that." He says something like that, but Ben says, um, "You know, uh, there's too much of that already," and he takes the bottle from from uh, from uh, from Freddie, and he pours it out. He pours it all out on the ground. And I think part of the message here um, is pretty obvious that, that alcohol uh, is a problem in Indian communities. Um, but more interesting is, is how the film suggests that uh, most of the Indians are not, uh, excuse me, that, that most of the Indians who don't drink to excess, um, that they don't approve of it. So while there's like this storm brewing at City Hall, there is a literal, and I do mean literal, storm brewing on the open plains. And there is some dissension uh, amongst the men uh, trailing our heroes here. Uh, it seems that they are kind of coming to the realization that this isn't your typical bounty hunter gig that, that they thought it was going to be. Uh, they, they realize uh, that they're actually contra uh, contracted to possibly kill uh, these men. And that sort of goes against their moral code. The moment is broken, however, when Pete the Scout um, finds some hoof prints um, in the mud. 
and they realize that, that they're getting closer, that, that we're closing in. So we cue to Sonny, and he's perched on a hill, and he's keeping watch of the valley below through a pair of binocs. And he's kind of scanning the area, you know, back and forth before retreating to Skitty. And Skitty's finally loading his pistols, the ones that he swiped um, from, from the museum at the beginning of the movie. He's finally got those pistols. And um, we also see uh, Tim Sampson, who is suffering um, from the gunshot. Somebody pays for Bubba. That I don't forgive. Some motherfucker bleeds for Bubba. And I'm keeping my hair, too. Same old shit. Nothing's changed in a hundred years. <coughs> oh, Jesus, Warren, you're bleeding bad. It's okay. I can make it. Looks worse than it is. Hey, we gotta get you to a hospital, Warren. Best thing we could do is drop you off down the hill and call an ambulance. What about T.O.? No turning back shit. Brothers. Oh, it's got nothing to do with it, Warren. You can't ride with a bullet in your gut. Hey, listen to him, Warren. You're Indian. You're not Superman. You guys get lost in the fucking parking lot. You need me. <laughs> if you can't already tell, uh, Warren is in pretty bad shape here. Um, he's coughing and wincing at, like, even just the, the slightest of movement. And I wanted to keep this in here just because I wanted to really showcase uh, Tim Sampson here. Uh, once again, just um, he's my favorite character in this film. Um, he just he's sort of like the glue that holds the boys uh, together. And I just like I said, he just, just turns in a great performance here. And I also wanted to make mention of uh, Sonny's uh, line there where he says, uh, "Nothing's changed in a hundred years." Um, that's basically the theme of this entire film. You know what I mean? So um, that will also come back into play uh, here in a little bit. So the trackers are literally kind of like, like, like literally messing around with horse shit to see um, if these are warm or not. And um, I guess I'm assuming that the, the warmer the road apple, the closer they are. So not only does this Colin Dittweiler guy um, have to break it open uh, and stick his finger in it to check the temperature, he also has to sniff it for freshness. I, I don't really get that at all. Um, I mean, you know what it is, right? It, it's a turd, so why do you have to, to sniff it? Uh, does a hot turd smell any different than a, than a stale one? And if so, like, what? Is it, is it a scent? Is it an aroma? Is, is, it, is it a pungent? Is it, is it a, uh, what is going on here? How could you possibly tell? Uh, I, have, I have no idea. But... Um, I, I found this scene uh, uh, even funnier uh, because there's this hired hand um, that, that picks up a stick uh, from the campfire and he tells Dittweiler um, that it's warm. And so uh, when he starts like putting his thumbs in the horse shit, the guy with the stick in his hand looks completely perplexed because he literally just told him the exact same thing. But this guy didn't have to get his hands dirty at all. So uh, clearly, clearly this Dittweiler fella just loves the limelight and the, the dr dramatic elements of the track. And he's definitely showing his ass a little bit or showing what an ass he is. But um, after getting uh, a good whiff of the shit, uh, uh, Dittweiler declares, ah, we're close. Um, 
So we get kind of like these back and forth shots of the war party riding out, and then we get the hunting party following, and it's several kind of back and forth shots. Uh, we see the tracking party kind of, you know, split up to cover more ground. Um, you see Ditweiler, he sort of starts trailing off into this wooded area, when suddenly through the trees, um, Sonny, like John Rambo's his ass from a tree, uh, just jumps straight down and knocks him clean off the horse. And they tumble down this comedically long hill for what seems like two solid minutes uh, before finally rolling to a stop at the bottom. Like this, this rolling scene goes on forever and ever. I was just like, Jesus Christ, how long is as big as this hill? But the tracking party, um, they ride up. The tracking party uh, rides up to be met with gunfire from, from Skitty and Warren. And they begin sort of exchanging rounds. And um, uh, Ditweiler starts screaming, like, my arm, my arm. And Sonny um, puts a pistol, like, right in his mouth. <clears throat> and it's at that point Skitty stops him. And he's like, Sonny, no, like, let's go, let's go. So before he can pull the trigger, the cavalry kind of moves in, causing Sonny to uh, hightail it out of there. And of course, before he leaves, um, he gives the old the old man like this swift kick in the ass, just just for good measure, you know, because he he deserves. Let, let's be honest. So Sonny he takes off on foot and he's jumping over logs and he, he's performing a lot more gratuitous somersaulting than, than is probably necessary here. But hey, it looks fantastic on screen nonetheless, and especially when you have um, um, Billy Worth performing these stunts, uh, it just makes it even more magnificent. But he ducks through some thicket, and he finds Skitty and Warren um, waiting with his horses. And he mounts up, and all three of them head out. So now we cut back to the now-decimated City Hall, and we get the scoop. Uh, we get the tea about the governor calling in the National Guard uh, to help round up three men. Incident like this could have unearthed all the racial tension that's obviously been buried here for decades. What's considered to be a controversial move on the governor's part to bring in the National Guard could worsen this situation in the eyes of the Indian Council. We're calling for the withdrawal of federal intervention. This is Kelly Eastman reporting live from Montana. Now, I'm a, like a huge, huge um, action movie buff. Huge. <laughs> Especially... You know, those old testosterone-fueled, oiled-up muscles, free sex-having ones from the 1980s. You know, you know the ones I'm talking about. Um, but the last time I saw the National Guard called in to apprehend a rogue party of three men, or, or just let's just say an individual, was in First Blood, which is, is the first movie starring John Rambo. And of course... Uh, true fans of that film will know exactly uh, the results uh, and how that turned out, right? Um, does, is calling in the National Guard to settle things, is, is that used uh, is, that used to be like a fairly common practice? I have no idea. Um, but, you know, when it deals with any kind of persons with, uh, of color, um, is this just how it's handled? Uh, uh, look at Standing Rock. Uh, look at the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s. Uh, Rodney King riots, the Alcatraz occupation, the Branch Davidians in Waco, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests in Wisconsin, and of course, the, uh, the insurrection at the Capitol. Oh wait, that didn't freaking happen! Sorry about that. Uh, Pete the Scout is, is trying his best uh, to nurse old Ditweiler back to health. Um, he, he tenderly 
makes him a splint, and, and he, he's he's dabbing his head with some with a cool rag with some water, and it's it's totally done in this very hetero way. Um, but the rest of the boys, uh, they want no part of this action any longer. And I'm talking about the boys uh, of Dittweiler's posse. They, they basically tell him, you know, this is not what we signed up for. And so uh, they basically take off. So now you have the abandoned Dittweiler and you have Pete the Scout. And they're basically left to their own devices here. So for some reason, they come to the conclusion that they're the conclusion that they are going to uh, kill uh, Sonny. They're going to kill Skitty, they're going to uh, kill Tim Sampson, and they're going to take their scalps. So, um, after, as this all is happening, um, our, our, our heroes of the film, the Native Boys, uh, they're, they're making their way across like this shallow little brook. Um, and that's when uh, Samson falls uh, face first, like right off of his horse and just like right down into the water. Uh, the boys, they immediately dismount. And they drag him. They drag him to shore, and, and sadly, oh, pour one out for Tim because it ain't looking good for him, people. Come on, come on, Warren, you're gonna be alright. Come on, let's get him over here. Let's get him. <coughs> you're right, Warren. Come on, Warren, you're gonna be alright. Warren, you okay? Warren, you're gonna be all right, man. I'm dying. Well, shit, Warren, you ain't done. I can't make it. Warren, you're copping out. You can't quit now. Remember the oath we took, Warren? We're brothers to the end. I can't make it. Warren, trust me, I've seen lots of people die, and they didn't go out looking anything like you, Warren. That's a pretty heart-wrenching moment right there. Um, and I, I, all the actors here, I, I got to say, um, they all did a great job selling this scene. Um, the emotional acting accompanied with just the strings, it just makes for like this really moving moment. Um, but unfortunately, we, we have a movie to get to. So we got to jump ahead to Pete the Scout. Um, he finds Warren's body atop a tree. And I'm not familiar enough with, with Sue or Blackfeet burial ceremony to comment on whether this is like an accurate representation. I'm assuming that it's not, but um, like I said, uh, if I'm wrong or, or please inform me, um, hit me up on Instagram or, or Facebook. Um, but what happens here is that Warren is dressed out in like this traditional buckskin outfit. And he's somehow like laid out straight uh, across the tree. And I can't even figure out how they accomplished this because um, it looks like he's almost floating like on top of the tree. It's kind of different. It's I'm gonna say weird. It's just like like what what? 
Um, but anyway, um, Warren is up in the tree and he's laying um, with his hands folded across his chest. And in his right hand, he's clutching uh, one of the revolvers that Skitty had pinched from, from the museum. So upon seeing this, uh, Pete, the scout, he sort of like um, shimmies up the tree like a ring-tailed lemur and attempts to wrestle the gun out of his hand. And when he does this, in like this ultimate like psych bitches uh, move, Warren uh, raises the pistol and he shoots Pete point blank, like right in the eye. I mean, straight up Bushwick bills his ass. And that's that's true warrior shit right there. Um, but uh, the gunshot um, alerts the National Guard to the whereabouts. So now you have um, all these white dudes in camo, these weekend warriors um, running all over the place like the sky is falling. And during all the hubbub, they find Dittweiler um, heterorally, uh, heterorally, I should say, uh, uh, holding Pete. And he's like cradling him like a baby and he's just like sobbing over him. Um, the captain uh, calls in the, brigade, the brigade and the National Guard start to assemble. So realizing um, that now they're in some pretty deep, uh, some pretty deep shit, uh, the boys are, are, are trying to scale a mountain on horseback, um, and the area becomes like way too steep to ride. So at this point, the boys jump off the horses, they grab the bridle, and literally like drag the beasts up the mountainside. And when I say dragging, I mean literally they're they're dragging them up this the side of this mountain. Um, and what kept these horses from saying, you know, screw this, <laughs> I'll never know because uh, they're not gentle here. They're, they're really like manhandling these horses. So once they get the horses up, um, it looks like they, they've come to some sort of like ceremonial site. And there's like this uh, wood like frame, it's like, like cane it looks like, um, like this frame structure. Um, it, it's like tied together with prayer with prayer rags and, and it's kind of strewn all over the place. So obviously maybe it was like some sort of sweat lodge just without like the covering. Um, but for the first time in the whole film, they find themselves sort of cornered. Um, our heroes are trapped. We're trapped! My father told me about this place. It's supposed to be sacred. What you didn't tell me is it's only one way in or out. We just went through it. Yeah, no shit. Oh, it's just fucking great, Sonny. What the fuck are we gonna do, huh? What the fuck are we gonna do, hey, man? Me. What's the matter? You okay? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just a little nervous, that's all. It's okay, man. Let's get our guns. Head up top, take cover. This scene is like perfect because um, it shows the vulnerability of the boys. It, it kind of shows their, I don't want to say their maturity level, but like just their, um, what am I trying to say? Like they're just, they're, they're, they're not these cunning uh, uh, escape artists or, or anything like that. They're, they're just, like I said, they're just boys. Um, they went to the one place that they thought was sacred. They went to the one place where they thought that they would be safe. And it turns out that um, while, while it is a, a sacred, you know, ceremonial spot, there's only one way in and one way out. So um, while all of this is happening, just below the base of the mountain, the mayor and the governor, um, they're, they're getting briefed on um, how they have basically have the boys cornered. 
And the governor suggests, uh, hey, let's begin negotiations. Um, I want to offer them food. I want to offer them two years probation. Um, let, let's just hope that they'll take the deal and they'll come down um, off the mountain peacefully. And as quick, though, as, as Sonny can shove rounds in his 30-06, we hear a voice uh, hollering from below. Brothers, right? Any closer, they call us queer. Sonny! Get it! This is Major Crawford! I'm with the Montana National Guard! The governor is taking charge of this personally. He wants you to know that nobody's going to get railroaded. There's a lot of extenuating circumstances, and they're going to be evaluated. He'll probably get probation. What do you think, Sonny? We're only talking probation here. You believe him? I don't know. I don't know either. You fellas, I had a hard trip of it. You got to be hungry. First you eat, then we talk. How about it? Sandwiches, coffee, eggs, anything you want. Either one of you smokes, we can probably wrestle up some cigarettes. Sonny, I could kill for a pack of marble lights. Fuck that shit. We want to talk to somebody. Lives on the reservation. Name's Freddy Manwolf. Okay, I'll try it. I do you guys one last favor, and then it's no more bullshit. We shake hands and go home together. Hey, Sonny, you think that old drunk's got some answers? If everyone would have listened to that old medicine man, now this would have happened. Well, from the clip, Sonny's not taking that bait whatsoever. Uh, he fired twice. Uh, he nearly hits the mayor. Um, for some reason, I don't know why he shot at him. He just could have just hollered back, uh, you know, hey, we, we don't trust anybody that's not from the reservation. And he demands that they talk to Freddie Manwolf, who somehow now is a medicine man. It's never one, one point in this film ever been hinted at that um, he's sort of any type of Gilas Heya. But uh, the mayor agrees, and he heads back down to relate the news to the governor. And they watch him, uh, you know, the boys watch him fade into the tree line. And then that's, like I said, Skitty asks Sonny, um, you know, do you think that old drunk has any answers? And Sonny says, you know, if they listen to the old medicine man, you know, we wouldn't even be in this situation. But the thing about it is he's right. Um, because if you remember back from the part um, in part one, it was Freddie who was against this whole reenactment, you know, debacle in the first place. And it's Freddie who still uh, holds on to Blackfeet traditions, um, although you know the alcohol ha has made his hold just a little slippery. And if you're wondering um, who Freddie Manwolf is, uh, remember he's Saginaw Grant. <laughs> um, but for the sake of the story, uh, like I said, now he's for some. Now he's a medicine man, just because the script needs him to be, I guess. Um, he's supposed to be, uh, you know, as a medicine man though, he, he's supposed to be revered. You know what I mean? So why is it necessary for Grant to be both a derelict and a medicine man? Because we have zero backstory uh, of any kind of prior reference uh, to anything um, other than him just, you know, showing up and, and banging on shit or, or, or laughing at inappropriate moments. 
but now the audience is, is supposed to buy him as this uh, as a healer. You know what I mean? So so so, so to me, this makes zero sense. Um, why can't uh, Freddie just be a, an elder in the community, a highly respected elder? Why, why do they got to put the 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 mystical uh, medicine man trope on him? Um, so so Freddie's character, you know at least to me, you know, it has to be more disturbing to, to native viewers of the film than just your casual movie-going audience. Because it's portrayals such as this, um, you know, they're, they're disturbing because alcoholism um, is such a serious problem. And, and no matter what, um, you know, medicine man or not, uh, this just does not make a very good role model um, for, for, for our story. But anyway, I'm sort of rambling there. Uh, they get Man Wolf up in the copter, and they, they sort of whisk him up the mountainside. And oh, oh, oh! <laughs> I forgot to mention. I forgot to say this: that um, uh, when the major is telling the the governor uh, of their demands, um, he he tells the governor that um, he wants to drag those boys down feet first. So overhearing this conversation, that's when the sheriff goes over to the tribal sheriff. And he tells him, you know, hey, man, I, I need your help because they want to storm in like Yosemite Sam and they want to bring him in belly down on a horse. And he's trying to, to prevent that from happening. So um, I forgot that little part. So the army um, choppers man wolf in. And um, I got to say, like, I, I couldn't help but kind of giggle at the ridiculousness of all of this. But it is what it is, um, because it seems for a moment that there's hope. Um, that, that he can bring these two men down safely from the mountain. Uh, Man Wolf, he, he quickly exits the, the chopper, and he quickly builds a fire, and he sets out all of these little medicine bundles. And the boys began sort of asking his opinion on, on whether they should surrender or, or do we keep fighting the good fight. And Sonny um, tells him, you know, uh, about the war party that they had made. And he just point blank asks, like, what? tell us what to do. Like, what do we need to do? But before uh, Man Wolf um, even gives them an answer, he offers up um, a prayer, uh, this medicine song that echoes through the entire valley. And as the song progresses, this um, lightning storm, um, this uh, Hollywood cinematic dramatic lightning storm uh, uh, starts to kick up. And I ain't talking like a little thunderstorm here. I'm talking like a full-on Frankenstein monster kind of light show here. I mean, bolts of lightning are cracking across the skyline, like thin, brittle fingers. The wind is like whipping the trees. The grass is blowing sideways. The army's getting nervous, and like all these black clouds roll in like, uh, like Ghostbusters. Remember the scene at the end, like the black cloud over the, over the apartment building? That's exactly like what it looks like. So, um, so while the army is getting nervous um, because it's looking like the end of the world out there, Freddie, uh, on the other hand, is absolutely ecstatic. And he starts shouting like, I did it. I did it. I made good medicine. Let those bastards doubt me now. Um, so so Manwolf goes so hard in the paint here with this song, he he's passes out like mid-verse. And once again, to me, this is a whole. This whole little bit is, is kind of troublesome. Um, that uh, you know, the uninitiated young men would would particularly seek out him, this person, for spiritual guidance. Uh, to me, that is commendable. But Freddie uh, seems more interested in his own personal reputation than just you know helping out the boys. 
And this point is further made when Skitty asks him, you know, during the middle of his song, like, that's great, but, but what did the medicine say? Did he say anything about us? So the whole point of him being there was to offer spiritual guidance to the boys, but in turn, he's like, um, like spite, spite blessing, or he's like, hate blessing, like, I'll show you. So I don't know, it was just kind of uh, left a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. Freddy, wake up! Wake up, old man! Wake up! I did it! Good mother, I did it! I made great medicine! Let the bastard let that Freddy man up now! Did the great medicine say anything about us? It said better to die in battle than to grow old. We heard that before. Yeah, about 50 times. Nappy ran a few words. He said, if one dies, the other should surrender. One man does not make a war party. Is that it? Is that all he told you? You came all the way up here to tell us that? Sonny, you'll probably get 20 years. Skitty, 10, at least five years. They lied to you, like they lied to our people so many times before. You've acted as warriors in doing what you have done. And you make me very proud of you. Okay, so unless there's like a cut or deleted scene somewhere, how does he know this? Uh, I mean, just a few like minutes earlier, we literally heard both the governor and the mayor relay the information to the uh, uh, major uh, of the military um, who also told uh, the tribal sheriff <laughs> that uh, cutting a deal for two years uh, with two years probation max. Like I said, he told that to the mayor. He told that uh, in front of a lieutenant. The tribal sheriff knows what the deal is. Um, in fact, there's there's too many people in the know for them to squelch on the deal at this point, right? I mean, it wasn't like he was like trying to downplay anything. Um, he basically was even like talking over, uh, like talking out loud because he's tra talking over trucks and um, that that were driving by. Um, so I gotta ask. Why, why are they listening to man wolf? You know what I mean? Like I, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that they should be taking the white man's word, but still be cautious. Don't be stupid. Um, because all we've seen of Saginaw Grant's character at this point is he's just like a drunken fool who constantly is berated by everyone in town. I mean, you've got Sonny, Skitty, Warren, Lewis, Sonny's dad, all the girlfriends, all of the town folks. They, they look at him like he's just crazier than a shithouse rat. But suddenly, um, when their lives are on the line, when they're, when they're asking for legitimate device, when, or advice, when their freedom is at stake, suddenly this guy is the voice of reason? Um, he, this is the man that, that you want to put your full trust in? It reminds me of what Wolf Redwing would say. Uh, the influence of an elder is often overrated. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to Clear Cut. And then when you're done, please rate that episode because I love that one. Um, so the advice that Man Wolf gives our two young men here is that it's better to die in battle than grow old. And that if one of you dies, then the other one should surrender because one man doesn't make a war party. What the hell is he talking about? 
Woo! Uh, it's at this point, uh, like I said, Freddy sort of drops the whole shaman persona, and, and suddenly he becomes like this knowledgeable elder um, that they need. Um, but but where was he this whole time? You know what I mean? Like like why didn't he act this way the whole time? Um, and you hear him say, uh, pretty pretty matter of factly, you know, like Sonny, you're gonna get twenty years. Skitty, you're gonna get ten. And and that's his advice. Like basically, you need to die on this battlefield because you're not gonna get a, a clear uh, a clear uh, you know you're, there's no justice that's gonna be served here. So. As quickly as he's choppered in, uh, they, they quickly come and scoop him up, and, and they leave the boys scratching their head. <laughs> and I'm shocked uh, that Skitty doesn't try to reason with Sonny here. Uh, he, he, at this whole point of the film, as funny and as goofy as Skitty's character is, he really is like um, Sonny's conscious. He, he's really like, um, you know, like the voice of reason here. So the boys here are understandingly upset. You know what I mean? Because they were expecting an answer to what they should do. But Man-Wolf, uh, the whole point of this scene to me is that he gets his redemption somehow. Um, that his advice, no matter what, is going to lead these two boys into a suicidal head charge uh, into a group of well-equipped National Guardsmen. So what? I don't understand this. this. This makes no sense to me. So, the next morning, um, we see the boys who are now, they're all warriored up. They've got their war paint on. They're, they're bare-chested. They've got their buckskin leggings on, uh, carefully tied. And they're kind of like casually riding down the mountainside. And the lieutenant uh, fears the boys are trying to flee. Uh, but then he realizes, like, oh, they're, they're not going anywhere. They're, they're basically riding down the mountainside, coming directly at them. Okay. So all the commotion of the men kind of coming down off the mountainside, it stirs up the numerous press outlets. You've got local law enforcement buzzing around, and the soldiers, they're all kind of like scurrying into position. And as they emerge from the tree line, uh, the boys kind of give a look at each other. And when I say the boys, I mean Skitty and Sonny. They kind of look at each other, and they raise their tomahawks and rifles above their heads and charge like full steam ahead uh, into the gathering of like 50 men all holding like submachine guns. I mean, honestly, is, is this really a threat? Is, is it a threat that these men who are, are holding like these barbaric weapons, like a tomahawk and, and okay, I mean, I guess Skitty has a rifle, but other than that, like, is that like a bolt, single bolt action rifle, but is that really a threat? Well, the lieutenant seems to think so. So he's hollering for the soldiers, like, get ready. Like, hold your fire, hold fire, hold fire. And then you get, like, these close-ups of, like, fingers, like, you know, slowly kind of squeezing gently around the trigger. But then Skitty kind of ditches the tomahawk, and he, he like, this is when he grabs the single-shot bolt-action rifle. And I'm saying single-action. It's one of those bolt-level, uh, you know, rifles. And um, the lieutenant then shouts, at my command only, while the governor is screaming, like, no, 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 we had an agreement. There's no, there's going to be no more casualties. So the tension's kind of building here. You have, um, you know, like, steady, steady. And then, like, the lieutenant, like, saying, like, selected marksmen only. And then um, the governor at this point, by the way, he, he's, like, enraged. He's, like, you know, like, stop, like, stop, like, no. And in a very controversial moment in the film, 
Um, Skitty fires a single shot from his raised rifle, only to be met with a hail of gunfire from the opposing soldiers. And I mean, they unload like a hundred rounds into these men and then cut to the dramatic and shocked and saddened faces of the news crew. You know, mouths are uh, agape and, and, and jaws are on the floor. Um, you have guilty looks of the soldiers. Uh, the mayor's lip is quivering. Um, and then we sort of crossfade to the bodies of our fallen brothers lying flat on their backs, just riddled with bullet wounds. Now, I said that this was a controversial moment in the film. Okay, and I'm going to tell you why. Because there are cuts of this film that I have read numerous articles on that the uh, the sound effect for Skitty's gunshot was only added later to the final cut of the film. That that was not a part of the film. Okay, that they just were riding down peacefully off the mountain when Skitty raises his rifle but didn't fire. And that that's when the National Guard unloads on the men for, for no reason. Thus meaning that the Army basically killed these two Native Americans. Okay, Which harkens back to the whole theme, the whole point of this movie is that, you know, a hundred years later, shit is still the same. There's no change. We're still doing the same shit. It's still us versus them. Okay. And I've, I've read numerous, um, you know, articles of people, um, even Frank Rodham said that like, he was shocked when he saw the final cut of the film and he saw that, that that gunshot had been dropped in because that was initially not part of the script. So um, I've never seen that cut of the film. I only have the one. I, I did kind of peruse the, uh, the version on YouTube. I also have the VHS copy here. So if anybody has a copy of that film without the gunshot, let me know because I would love to check it out. But uh, so kind of back to the film here, um, still clutching the tomahawk in like his bloodied fist, uh, a soldier goes over and pries it loose and he holds it up like some sort of trophy. And thus we begin the whole horrible cycle once again. And it's a 100 percent call back to the opening of the movie. Right. So the lieutenant, it's like a lieutenant. He's taking the same tomahawk from the hand of the great grandson of the chief you got a freeze frame here. You cue the cinematic eagle screech, fade to black, and then credits. Okay, so there's no reason, there's no reason that we need to see him take that hatchet back to the mayor because we already know what's going to happen, right? Sonny told us nothing's changed, same old shit for a hundred years, and like I said, the whole message of this movie, my my fellow listeners, is is that all right? Nothing's changed. Okay. So, uh, full disclosure, <laughs> okay, this, this ain't a perfect film, okay, but that's, that's the end of the film, okay, and if you haven't seen it, go check it out, it's on YouTube, all right, but this is not a perfect film, um, for one, uh, the love story between Sonny and Crystal and Skitty and Dolly, they sort of seem shoehorned in, uh, it doesn't really go anywhere or, or pay off in any kind of way, and you know what that is, right, you know what that is, don't you? Um, it, it's so that we know the boys have a full-blown case of the not gays, right? I talked about this in the, Lone, the Legend of the Lone Ranger episode. Go listen to that um, and then meet me back here for an apology 
because that episode is a real pile of shit. But anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that you, you get these forced relationships on screen um, just so that our characters have uh, some interaction with, with female characters. They don't really serve any sort of point. They don't do anything in the film other than just be there to let us know that these, these, these boys that have spent this whole time together, shirtless, by the way, that, that they, they love women, you know, that they're men's men, that they're, they're not, you know, whatever. So, um, but anyway, <laughs> I will say this, you know, other than, than a few flaws that I've mentioned throughout the podcast, this, uh, this, this film is definitely worth your time. It's, it's pretty well crafted and, um, it's, it's very well shot thanks to the excellent cinematography of Brian Tufano. Um, but I also feel like it, it's trying very hard to um, depict contemporary Native characters that are very recognizable to Native audiences. Um, I think that they're, 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 trying, uh, they're trying their best, basically. And sure, there are a couple of typical stereotypical portrayals, but I also found um, that they tried very, very carefully to deconstruct them. I don't know. What do you think? Um, but I, again, the, the whole highlight for this film for me is Tim Sampson. Um, watching him on a horse is, is just a clear, uh, just an absolute joy. And this is one of the only films, I believe, where he got like a lot of screen time. Uh, most of his, his screen time is, is kind of relegated to a few bit parts or things like this. But here, he's almost front and center, and he's just such a central part to, to the story. His character, his portrayal was just spot on. So if anything, do yourself a favor and watch it for, for, for Tim Sampson. Okay, so now we're at the groaners part. Uh, you know what the groaners are. The cigar store groaners, that's what I call them. You, you probably have your own word for them. Uh, but it's those demonstrative stereotypical tropes that you commonly see in movie and television programs that feature indigenous characters, themes, or storylines. I call them groaners because each time I see one played out, they sporadically cause me to groan out loud or, or at least snicker with, with juvenile expectancy. You probably have your own, and I'm sure that you do, but here are my top 10 list of commonly seen groaners in native films. Uh, number one, uh, uh, Drunk Indian. Uh, yep, you know it, uh, Freddie Manwolf. He is a part of the story here, and definitely drunk. Number two, does the lead character have a white best friend or girlfriend? Kind of. Um, Skitty is, is three-eighths, but I am of the opinion that, that blood quantum doesn't really matter that much. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that will disagree with me. Um, number three, is there a medicine man or shaman? And bonus points, if the lead character goes on some sort of spiritual journey. Yes, uh, back to old Freddy Manwolf. He is a medicine man. He is a shaman. However, nobody goes on any type of spiritual journey here. Uh, number four is the antagonist white or bonus points if he or she turns out to be the hero and I'm going to say yes just about every white person in this movie is a bad guy or an antagonist uh, number five a native turncoat or a native sellout yes the crow scout is completely colonialized and assimilated um, some could argue he's just doing his job that he's not you know contractually obligated to hunt natives only it just sort of happens to be the case who knows but yeah the crow scout um is there a bar fight absolutely 100 percent. there's not one bar fight in this film there are two um is there a mention of peyote or hallucinogenic drugs or medicine no there is not 
Number eight, did any character use racial names or get called anything inappropriate? Oh, yeah, they do. And I'm not even going to mention them because it's disgusting. Uh, number nine, does a character receive an Indian name? No, they do not. Uh, number ten, is there mention of a scalping? Yes, and this is the first film that we've covered that features an actual on-screen scalping. Um, I also give two bonus groans. Um, was there an eagle screech in the movie? Um, uh, they, they, they checked a lot of boxes, so that has there has to be one, right? And, and there is. At the very, it closes out the film, uh, an eagle screech at the very end of the film. And then number 12, uh, were there any female characters? Uh, were they the subject of any type of abuse, be it verbal, physical, or sexual? Thank God, no. So uh, seven and a half groans, which... Uh, that's kind of high. That that's kind of high. Okay, but like I said, this this film is definitely worth your time. Um, it's it's available for free on YouTube. But if you can find it, um, check uh, Flea Bay for, for for it on VHS. I, I don't believe that it ever came out on DVD, um, but maybe I'm wrong. So yep, check it out. Okay, so that's the end of this episode, but not the end of me. Uh, man, I, I've got a lot, a lot of stuff coming up. Um, so first things first, I'm super stoked to, um, announce that, um, myself, uh, Skoden Cinema, along with Oki Podcast and Toke Signals Podcast, we are going to be doing a live show. That's right. A live in the flesh show at the Shrine in Tulsa, Oklahoma on March 10th. Um, that is a five dollar entry fee. It's part of the All Due Respect comedy show. Um, I guess some of you guys listening out there think that I'm funny. I, I don't know, <laughs> but I was invited to do this, and I am nervous uh, as heck. I, I, I will probably be crapping my pants throughout the entire thing. So if if you want to come out and, and see me freeze up and stutter and stammer and say things like "know what I mean" live in person. Uh, come on out. Uh, I would love to shake hands and, and meet you or give you a fist bump and, and then um, sanitize uh, right after. But it's going to be in a great show. Um, like I said, I'm super stoked. Uh, again, nervous. I'm so nervous. But looking forward to that. Um, and then for this next episode, I'm, we're doing something kind of different. Uh, myself and, and Russell Sun Eagle from Oki Podcast have enlisted the help of our good friend, uh, Mr. Chris Hill, who is going to be sharing part of our series called um, uh, Unsolved Mysteries of the Reservation. And uh, for episode 20, I'm going to be doing a native adjacent film uh, called The Legend of Boggy Creek which is one of the very first uh, found footage or documentary style films uh, on the legendary uh, creature Bigfoot. And so I've invited uh, Chris Hill to be a part of the show. He's going to tell us some hunka stories and he's going to uh, really uh, delve in deep to uh, native uh, stories about about Bigfoot, um, who he is, at least from the Muscogee side. So I'm super, super excited for that. Um, I've also appeared on the Right Potatoes podcast. They, they, they just celebrated their 100th episode. So congratulations, boys. I was on that show. And there is also a brand new podcast coming out um, called Real Indigenous. And I was invited to be a part of that. And I'm 
looking forward for that new uh, for that new show. So, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And if you have any uh, comments or any questions, you can always email them to me at scotencinema at gmail.com. Hit me up on the Instagram thing. Um, I'm at scoden underscore cinema. Um, you can also find me on Facebook. Um, I have two groups going there. I've got the, the, the absolutely free uh, private group <laughs> where you get all of the. It's, it's my only fans page. Just kidding. And then uh, also uh, the free one where, where you don't get to see uh, as much skin, but it's definitely free. Uh, but I've got that going as well. It's over on Facebook or Meta or whatever it's called now. So, so look me up there and join the conversation, join the discussion. So, Maro, uh, Ananwa, and, and Hopti, and, and I'll be looking forward to, to catching up with you again next month when we talk about uh, some Honka stories from Mr. Chris Hill and, and Russell Sun Eagle. So, Maro.